KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. President Trump clashes with state officials as he denies climate change. It'll start getting cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> hey, well, I don't think science knows actually. I'm Mark Sauer, in for Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Senate Leader Tony Atkins on the state's disappointing legislative session. The most difficult year I've experienced in my 10 years in the legislature. UC San Diego launches a way to track COVID-19 infections via smartphones, and political intrigue engulfs the city's building debacle on Ash Street. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. President Trump used a visit to California yesterday to scold state leaders over forest management and clash with them about whether a warming climate is a critical cause in the death and destruction caused by the state's record-setting wildfires. That placed climate change at the center of the presidential election as Democrat Joe Biden blasted Trump for his remarks. Joining me is Katie Orr, a Sacramento-based political reporter for KQED Public Radio. Katie, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hi, Mark. So you covered Trump's visit yesterday. Set the scene for us. Where was this confrontation? Who was there? Right. Uh, Trump flew into uh, an old Air Force base, what used to be an Air Force base in Sacramento, um, primarily to get a briefing from Governor Gavin Newsom and uh, state uh, CAL FIRE and um, natural resources officials about what exactly is happening with these fires and what we're looking at here, what the state has been dealing with. Uh, Trump landed the plane. He uh, briefly spoke to reporters, including uh, uh, me, I got to ask him a question about what he thinks um, the role of climate change is in these fires. He said primarily he believes that it's uh, an issue of forest management versus climate change. Well, that sets up the meat of the things here. Here's this exchange between Trump and Wade Crowfoot. He's the California Secretary for Natural Resources. And Crowfoot starts and then Trump. We want to work with you to really recognize the changing climate and what it means to our forests and actually work together with that science. That science is gonna be key, because if we, if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay, it'll start getting cooler. I you, wish, just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> well, I don't think science knows, actually. Katie, Governor Gavin Newsom seemed restrained in his comments compared with his denigration last week of climate change deniers, right? He really didn't confront Trump. Of course, there's a lot of money on the line with federal disaster aid. 
Right. And I think that's the tightrope that Governor Gavin Newsom is playing, especially being in the room directly with Trump. He knows that um, he has to, to some extent, stroke Trump's ego, uh, because like you said, there is a lot of federal uh, disaster money that the state relies on. And President Trump has said that, you know, if if governors aren't nice to him, don't say nice things to him, then he is, uh, you know, has threatened to withhold that money. And that's not something that Governor uh, Gavin Newsom uh, wants. Uh, and it is interesting, too, though, because while he was restrained with Donald Trump, he did not give him an opportunity to, like, get a picture uh, in front of reporters, in front of Air Force One. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom declined to stand in front of the press with the president uh, on this trip. I noticed, uh, of course, Newsom and other state leaders there had masks on at the event, and, and Trump did not. You mentioned the uh, U.S. Trump, the question about climate change and all. Were you surprised the president keeps making his claims about the climate getting cooler and science lacking answers? Well, this is a message that we've seen him repeat uh, for several years. Uh, When he toured wildfire areas uh, back when uh, Governor Jerry Brown was leaving office and Governor Gavin Newsom was coming into it, he, uh, Trump again, made um, that infamous comment about raking the forest, you know, forest management. And Newsom says there is a role for that uh, in, in fire suppression. However, it's not, in Newsom's opinion and in many people's opinion, it's not the uh, overarching uh, driver of why we're having these fires. But it's not unusual to hear Trump use that as the main um, as his main theory for why we're seeing so many fires in, in the West on the West Coast. And it's not at all clear Trump understands that the majority of forests in California are federally uh uh, owned and, and operated and maintained. Well, let's play part of the strident response from former Vice President Biden. He was speaking from his home state of Delaware. Donald Trump's climate denial may not have caused these fires and record floods and record hurricanes, but if he gets a second term, these hellish events will continue to become more common, more devastating, and more deadly. Now, Katie, Trump appears to have no chance to win California on November 3rd, but how do you think climate change is going to play out in the debates and this national campaign going forward? Right. As you mentioned, he's not going to win California. It's a, it's a Democratic state. It, it, um, that is something that Joe Biden can count on uh, this year. But there are those people, the swing voters in those in those certain states that he is trying to reach. And a lot of people, um, despite what we know now about the science still have um, still are a bit skeptical about whether or not climate change is something that is causing um, the the changes in the weather and these fires that we have been experiencing. And he's trying to reach those voters. Uh, but obviously, it's something that Biden feels like is a, a topic that he can score points on. Otherwise, he wouldn't be coming out with these big speeches. So I think we will see this, you know, be a theme that they keep coming back to throughout throughout the uh, campaign. I've been speaking with Katie Orr, Sacramento-based political reporter for KQED Public Radio. Thanks, Katie. You're welcome. The turmoil surrounding COVID-19 touched everything this year, including our California state legislature. When the Senate and Assembly wrapped up their sessions in August, many closely watched bills failed to get the votes they needed to pass. 
It was a disappointing end to a session that tried to tackle many vital issues, including police reform and the housing shortage. California Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins of San Diego spoke with KPBS host Allison St. John on how the legislative session wrapped up. Here's that interview. So now you've been in the state legislature for 10 years. You've seen a lot of sessions. How do you feel about what happened this year? Well, it was probably, I would have to say, Allison, the most difficult year I've experienced in my 10 years in the legislature. And it was a confluence of the pandemic, uh, having a truncated legislative session. We missed weeks and weeks. Uh, And then it was the second uh, year of a two-year session, which means you have to adjourn at midnight, uh, sine die. And um, I think all of those things combined uh, with the fact that we were also remote voting, which took more time than typically would have, it just, all of those things combined uh, made it especially difficult, I think. Everything came crashing up against the deadline, didn't it? Um, It did. What would you, what would you say was some of the things, the key things that, that did get done? So we were able to get a number of good things done in terms of the legislation. I would say um, we put a billion dollars for COVID prevention and life-saving care. We paid for equipment. We passed legislation to increase protective equipment, supplies, cleaning for schools, uh, work, uh, a bill to provide notice so essential workers are informed when someone in their workplace is infected. So we did a lot of COVID-related issues, paid family leave. rebuttable presumption so employees who become infected on the job don't have to jump through hoops to get medical care uh, or workers compensation we were able and on the issue of racial justice we were able to put proposition 16 and 17 on the ballot to let people decide on race being a factor in state decisions uh, also restoring voter rights for individuals working their way back into society who formerly incarcerated so We got a lot of things done. We, of course, didn't get as much done as we would have liked to get done. And that's the point that you were making. Now, housing is such a a big issue. I know it's been one of your big priorities. And you made some remarks to the Senate back in January after SB 50 failed. That was the bill that would have required cities to allow more housing density in areas near public transit. And here's what you said at the time. I want to personally commit to each and every one of you, to the people of California, that a housing production bill to help alleviate our housing crisis will happen this year. Now it is time for all sides to step up. And in the end, you know, some housing bills passed, but none of them came close to what SB 50 would have done to encourage building more new homes. Do you feel you kept your promise to the people of California? Well, I I think in terms of the legislation we put forward, of course, you're talking about SB 1120, which was the follow-up to SB 50, and it would have encouraged small-scale development, allowing duplexes on single-family lots. And that was one of the key bills that unfortunately fell victim to timing. But it certainly wasn't for lack of trying in the Senate. We got the bill over to the Assembly. Uh, It was a straightforward bill. Uh, I think there was a lot of misinformation about it. I spent a lot of time on the phone answering questions. So the intent of the bill was housing production. uh, And uh, there were votes and support for the bill. My colleague in the assembly, Robert Rivas, did an amazing job helping get the votes we needed for the bill to pass. 
you know, the unfortunate thing is I think there was plenty of time for that bill to be heard before the literal 11th hour on the last night of session. So it's disappointing uh, that either that bill or SB 995, another bill that would have been a tool that would provide uh, uh, the ability to advance housing production. Uh, the thing I would say about that is both of these bills are in a very good position. They had support in not just the Senate, but the Assembly. And I guess I'd say I've been here before. It took me a few years to get um, my other landmark affordable housing bill enacted, SB2, which provided an ongoing stream and permanent stream of, of money for housing. Um, I'm disappointed that we didn't get this over the finish line before midnight at the end of session, but I think the work that we did was, was critical. And I know that we will pick this up as soon as we can in January um, and try to get it done even quicker, uh, maybe in the first few months rather than for it to take the entire year. There were some other legislators who, who said that it was not just that you came up against the clock. There were other reasons that uh, SB 1120 failed. Um, where was the resistance coming from? I mean, what needs to change for more progress in the future when you reintroduce these bills? You know, Allison, I think, um, the nature of the legislature is that at the end of session, you know, there are factors that, that normally play in. Uh, it's not uncommon for, for uh, the Republicans to try to slow down Democratic legislation. That happened. Uh, that is a normal occurrence. Uh, it probably would have been more manageable had the Republicans actually been in the chamber. But because of their exposure and a senator in the Republican caucus becoming infected, in fact, a San Diego uh, senator, Brian Jones, and exposing the other Republican senators, we weren't able to have them in the chamber, but we did make it possible for them to, to be able to part, participate in debate and actually be able to vote, but it took longer. So, um, you know, it was a combination of the assembly not bringing the bill up soon enough because it clearly had the votes, and it was a combination of uh, the Republicans slowing down the process. Those are typical things that happen in politics and the legislature at the end of session. But when you add to it the tension, the stress, the health concerns around the pandemic, it just all uh, helps slow things down even further, make tensions even higher. And it's unfortunate, but I do believe that we will get these pieces of legislation done. There were important uh, pieces of legislation around um, criminal justice reform, police reform. Yes, I, I wanted to move on to, to police reform. You, you had two, two major police reform measures that, that stalled this year, and, and uh, one of them would have initiated a process to decertify officers convicted of, of certain crimes, and then another one would have created standards for the use of less than lethal force, including rubber bullets. Um, so they also didn't pass. Backers blame police unions for blocking it. D do you think police unions have too much influence in Sacramento? Well, I, I don't know that that's exactly accurate. I mean, we got Shirley Weber's bill done two years ago. Her bill was uh, probably one of the most significant pieces of legislation in the country around uh, police use of force. And um, I think since that time, the dynamic and experience in our country has actually lent more towards more pieces of legislation. Um, I, I, we were able to get a couple of pieces of legislation done 
I, I think that we will be able to get uh, more work done on police reform as well. I think we saw Senator Bradford's juvenile justice reform bill. We saw Assemblymember Weber's ethnic studies bill. And of course, Proposition 16 and 17, which was the um, affirmative action as well as um, reform around voting rights for formerly incarcerated. Those things uh, wouldn't have passed in previous years. And there are some who think that the affirmative action was able to pass because of um, the work uh, that came out of the unfortunate murder of George Floyd and so many others. So police reform is definitely not dead at this point, in spite of the fact that this has been perhaps a good opportunity. Um, I, I guess finally I wanted to ask you, was it difficult to manage a session? You were talking about the your Republican colleagues who were in quarantine and participating virtually. What do you think about the possibility of allowing virtual attendance at legislative sessions in the future after the pandemic? Well, I think what's ideal is to be present and in the chamber because it allows for the ultimate of transparency, of public participation, of the ability for the public to see the interaction of uh, legislators. I do think it is, it, it is a tool to use in circumstances like we're in with the pandemic. And I think it will be a tool we continue to use, you know, should the governor call us into a special session or should we go back in January and we are still faced with a pandemic without um, the benefit of, um, you know, a vaccine or further protections, we've got to be prepared, still conduct the legislative business of the people for California. Yes. Well, California Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins of San Diego, thank you very much for filling us in on this last session. Allison, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you. That was California Senate Leader Tony Atkins of San Diego speaking with KPBS host Allison St. John. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm Mark Sauer, and for Maureen Cavanaugh, you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. New records obtained by KPBS show community outbreaks of coronavirus were concentrated in areas known for their nightlife. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento says data obtained and analyzed by KPBS reveal which zip codes experienced the most outbreaks in the county. A night out in San Diego's historic Gaslamp District has taken on a different look during COVID. A blocked off street is a makeshift promenade. Dining rooms sit in front of parking meters. Do you want to be inside or would you rather go? Neighborhoods across the county are taking similar steps to protect the public and keep businesses running during the pandemic. 
But community outbreak data show more is at stake in this area. A KPBS analysis found the zip code that includes Gaslamp, Little Italy, and the East Village accounts for the highest number of outbreaks than any other in the county. An outbreak is defined as three or more cases that can be traced back to one location. It wouldn't make sense with all the employees that are working down here and all the different establishments that our number would be higher than, say, Del Mar or La Jolla. Michael Trimble runs the neighborhood business district Gaslamp Quarter Association. He's not surprised by KPBS's findings, but he points to banners above him that show business owners personally pledging to help keep customers safe. And they're going to know they're going to have in a, be in an environment where they can actually be comfortable and know they're not going to come down with COVID. The pledge came after Union Tribune reporters' photos in June that showed a sea of uncovered faces in the gas lamp. Well, it was disappointing to see that, and it really uh, lit a fire under my office and my association, and really uh, taught the merchants that people are watching what we're doing. Data through late July show 14 outbreaks have occurred in 92101. But Trimble says he didn't know of any tied specifically to the gas lamp. And at this point, I don't know of anyone who had an outbreak in the gas lamp corner. The Little Italy Association said two of its restaurants closed because of staff illnesses. The East Village Business Group didn't respond to messages. Overall, more than a third of the county's outbreaks have happened at businesses in just four zip codes. That includes 92109 in Pacific Beach. It's not surprising it's happening here. Sarah Burns is the executive director of Discover Pacific Beach. People are coming into Pacific Beach, um, and with that, they're bringing um, symptoms and, and coronavirus. She helps businesses understand and follow public health regulations to keep customers safe. Businesses care about preventing outbreaks. I mean, their staff is probably the one most at risk, and um, they're trying to stay open to feed their families so that their staff can feed their families. But 11 outbreaks have happened in the zip code, which also covers Mission Beach. One PB restaurant, El Prez, was ordered to close when video showed unmasked customers packed inside. Burns says she doesn't know if El Prez was linked to an outbreak, but welcomes the county's action. I think that's what we want to see as a, as a community, um, that those that are not following the rules or need assistance with the rules are getting it. She says businesses that have had outbreaks have shut down to sterilize the facility and get workers tested, but none agreed to speak with KPBS. A lot of this is more coming from staff outbreaks, not necessarily customer outbreaks, um, and they're taking care of what they need to take care of to reopen safely. I don't think any, any business wants to necessarily be associated with an outbreak. The two other zip codes were located in the South Bay, and more than half of the outbreaks there happened in Manhattan manufacturing and food processing facilities. County officials won't release the exact outbreak locations because they fear it will cause businesses to shy away from reporting them. But KPBS and Voice of San Diego are challenging that in court because we feel the public has a right to know. In the gas lamp, Business Association head Trimble hired events coordinator Laurel McFarland to help businesses follow public health rules. McFarland says businesses should be notifying customers if they have an outbreak, but not the public. But I do feel there's a responsibility to let your customers know, but I don't know if there's a responsibility to let everyone know because it's really about keeping the people who came safe and knowledgeable. But she says she'd follow whatever rules county officials put out. If that's something they feel is we need to do more and do it publicly, then we'll follow those rules too. Everyone's just trying to follow the rules right now. The county health department did not respond to requests for an interview. Taryn Mento, KPBS News. More businesses are reopening in San Diego, and you may have questions about what this means for public health amid the coronavirus. 
Go to kpbs.org slash Curious San Diego and tell us what questions we should ask a local infectious disease expert in an upcoming interview. There are lessons to be learned from the health crisis that developed when students returned to campus this month at San Diego State University. There, at least 640 of them contracted COVID-19. And leaders at UC San Diego will have a new tool in their kit to minimize spread of the virus when classes begin on the La Jolla campus, now scheduled for September 28th. It has to do with tracing via smartphones. And joining me to explain is Dr. Christopher Longhurst, the Chief Information Officer and Associate Chief Medical Officer at UC San Diego Health. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on, Mark. Start with the smartphone tool. What is it and who will have it on their phones? So the um, smartphone tool that we're talking about uh, is not actually a contact tracing application. It's called an exposure notification application. What that means is that if you come into contact with somebody whose phone um, is close to yours and they're diagnosed with COVID, that you could get an anonymous notification of exposure. And that allows you to go get tested and shorten that cycle time and hopefully, uh, hopefully limit the spread of any outbreak. Now, so if I'm on campus as a student or a staff faculty member and suddenly I get a beep on my phone, it's going to tell me just what exactly? So you might get that beep on your phone and you'd get a message that says, uh, you've come into close contact with somebody who was recently diagnosed with COVID. Please call this number for more information. And when you call the number, you'll get the UC San Diego Health testing line. And based off the message that you're getting, we can give you a risk prioritized recommendation around either isolating or um, actually getting tested. For example, if you were exposed um, just uh, within the last couple of days, we might ask you to get tested today and again five days from now. And of course, that's at no cost to our students and employees. And how's this really going to help? Who is this most important for this new tool? We think that this exposure notification tool is not going to help your household contacts, friends and family members that you would call and tell anyway if you were diagnosed with COVID. We think that the people that's going to help most are the strangers. It's the people at the college party or at the restaurant, or at the bar, or in the grocery store, on the plane, in the bus, who you would not otherwise know their name and phone number when the contact tracers call you. Those are the people who will be notified and would not have been otherwise notified. And that's where we're really going to um, get a movement on these outbreaks. Now, the university got state permission to launch a pilot program for this. It's not been done elsewhere in California, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, it's almost the, reserve, the reverse, which is the state um, has decided to roll this out in a pilot and UC San Diego stepped forward and volunteered. And what about privacy concerns? Does this mean participants in this program can have their movements tracked? Absolutely not. I'm glad that you asked. Um, these exposure notification applications from Apple and Google do not allow for any location tracking. And that's really important. There were some rumors early in the pandemic that uh, some countries in Asia and elsewhere were using location tracking for contact tracing. And it turns out not only does that not help, it doesn't work. Um, this is really distance-based. It's using Bluetooth to measure distance to other people's phones. Um, it doesn't track any location at all. That being said, this is a voluntary and opt-in program, and we hope that our uh, employees and students will uh, choose to opt-in, but we know the number one concern that comes forward is privacy. We've done extensive reviews from a privacy standpoint, and we feel really confident that this is an anonymous system that will not store any uh, individual user data. And how many students do you expect back on campus at the end of the month? And any guess on how many students and staff will opt to participate in this particular program? 
So we're expecting close to 8,000 students back on campus uh, and thousands more who will be moving off campus into the region. The prediction for how many will adopt it, uh, your guess may be as good as mine, but our goal is over 75%. Uh, we know that with over 50% adoption, that we can actually have an impact on the spread of this uh, disease. Even lower rates can help prevent infections. I had read that this had been tried elsewhere in the world during the pandemic. Uh, what have you learned from uh, experiments in other places? It's a great question. So Apple and Google announced this technology that they were working on in March. They rolled it out in May. And over the summer, we saw a number of privacy-forward European countries actually adopt this technology. So the United Kingdom, Ireland, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, and others have started rolling this out over the last couple of months. So we're definitely building on their best practices. One of the things that we've learned from the other six US states that have already rolled this out, like Virginia, Alabama, and even Arizona, is that putting the uh, notification process at the contact tracing stage is a little bit too far downstream. So the way that the notification works, if I'm diagnosed with COVID, is that I'm given a key code to enter because we don't want just anybody to be able to attest that they've uh, been diagnosed, right? So that key code is what starts the anonymous exposure notification process. So rather than having our contact tracers uh, give out those key codes, we're actually asking our testing line to do it. So after we test you here at UC San Diego Health, and we do a thousand tests every day, um, on a daily basis, we're gonna find some students and some employees who are positive. When we call them up, we'll say, hey, you've been diagnosed uh, with COVID. We're gonna call you on a daily basis to check in on you and your symptoms. and we can give you a six-digit key code to anonymously alert people you may have exposed if uh, you'd like to put that in. So it's a voluntary step. And this pilot program at UCSD, I'm sure it's going to be watched closely across the state and the nation. What other protections will be in place when students return to campus? Our uh, most important protection is obviously masking. And so uh, we're asking all of our students, faculty, and staff to wear uh, masks in any space where they uh, could encounter other people. And that's really the root of uh, prevention of COVID-19. This is something that can augment contact tracing if there is an outbreak, but the modeling certainly shows that it's likely to help, um, you know, what could be an outbreak affecting 20, 30, or 40 students might be reduced to three or four students because we're testing and isolating more quickly than we would be without this tool. I've been speaking with Dr. Christopher Longhurst, the Chief Information Officer and Associate Chief Medical Officer at UC San Diego Health. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. It was the longtime headquarters of Sempra Energy downtown. Now the building at 101 Ash Street has become a legacy white elephant for outgoing Mayor Kevin Faulkner, a big headache for city council and the subject of intrigue involving a local media outlet, the race to replace the mayor, and more. Joining me to sort it all out is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Mark. Thanks. So uh, before we get to the scam, which apparently used NBC7 San Diego to smear two candidates for public office, uh, set the situation up for us. Give us the rundown of how and why the city wanted to buy this building at 101 Ash Street. Sure. So the city has a real estate problem with its employees. A lot of them are working in pretty drab conditions downtown. Um, if you've ever walked into the Development Services Department, for example, it's a really outdated office space 
cramped quarters, just not the best place for um, employees to be doing their best work. And so the building at 101 Ash Street held the promise of a relatively new um, consolidated office space for city employees. Um, the building was owned by a businessman, Sandy Shapery. There was also a minority stake in the building owned by um, Doug Manchester, the hotelier and, and developer. And so the city had been negotiating with that uh, with Shapery over the the purchase price. Um, it was uh, they had agreed to about seventy two million dollars. We later found out that there was an appraisal that put the value significantly lower. And anyone with a mortgage uh, should know that when you want to buy a building and it ends up appraising for less than your agreed purchase price, you'll have uh, trouble getting a loan for that uh, purchase because the lender doesn't want to pay an inflated value. Basically, the this uh, appraisal problem. Led the city to agree to a lease to own deal so that they could be essentially renting the building and then have an option to purchase it later. So what eventually happened? We did get this, this lease to purchase deal and it was a lot of money over a lot of years, right? Correct. Uh, more than $120 million. Uh, the city was um, paying $18,000 in rent uh, each day and it was not able to occupy the building. Uh, initially, the city staff said that it just needed a good power washing, but um, a further inspection found that it in fact had a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, there were just a lot of issues with the building. And so yes, the city agreed to this deal and it, the deal had it paying about $18,000 per day in rent. But it turned out that the building needed a lot more work than the city originally thought. And the move-in date kept getting pushed back and back. And the city had to spend $30 million more on tenant improvements than it initially anticipated. So the scandal was growing. Yeah, it certainly was. And I guess the employees moved in briefly. They had to go out and uh, now it sits there empty. And Faulkner finally threw up his hands and, and quit paying the rent last week, right? That's right. So while the um, construction work was being done, the contractors dislodged asbestos into the air. Hundreds of uh, city employees had to be evacuated from the building and go back to their old, not appealing office space. And the city was actually cited by the county for air quality violations. They continued to spend money on the improvements. Uh, they continued to pay rent on the vacant building. And ultimately, uh, you know, up until now, and up until the point that um, Faulkner ordered the city to stop paying the rent payments, um, the city had spent more than $50 million without much to show for it. Yeah, one of those deals where nobody's happy but the lawyers. So this is a burgeoning scandal, as you say, it's, and it's playing into two local political races, the one between Councilwoman Barbara Bree and former Councilman Todd Gloria for mayor and between city attorney Mara Elliott and her challenger, attorney Corey Briggs. So tell us about NBC7 San Diego's reporting, uh, which they first posted a couple of weeks ago. NBC reported on this gap in the appraisal and the purchase price. Um, it's It had obtained a memo written by an outside law firm that was hired by the city, or rather what it thought was a memo. And uh, the appraisal issue was kind of buried in the story. The headline and the lead of the story really focused on a footnote in this memo. And that footnote said that the investigators had tried to interview Todd Gloria to determine whether he had somehow misled the public or misled his council colleagues about what he knew about the building's value. It was very vague um, allegations. And then in this footnote, it also says they tried to interview Gloria and that the city attorney, Mar Elliott, blocked that interview from happening. A lot of things immediately didn't really add up in this footnote. Why would Elliot, the city attorney, have the ability to block investigators from interviewing 
Todd Gloria, who no longer works at the city. She has really no authority in that matter. The footnote also, interestingly enough, called Todd Gloria the council president, which he had not been for years, and that was kind of a head scratcher. And immediately after the story published, the city attorney's office and the lawyers who actually wrote this memo say that that footnote was a complete fabrication. And NBC still kept the story up and did not issue a retraction until last week when they were uh, somehow able to identify or verify that this footnote was in fact a forgery and they retracted the story, which is a very big deal in journalism. And now it is clearer than ever that somebody gave a news outlet a forged document in an apparent effort to smear two elected officials two months before we voters in the city are going to be decided whether these two people are fit to occupy the two most powerful positions in city government. This is a huge deal and voters really need to understand what's going on right now. Right, and as you say, uh, there were were strident and immediate reactions from Todd Gloria and Myra Elliott, this Orange County uh, law firm. And as you say, NBC7 has uh, retracted this, done what we call a big skin back and it's embarrassing. We'll see if there's more coming on that. Wouldn't you think they're trying to do an investigative piece now on how they got uh, got hoodwinked on this? The, they say that they are, in fact. They're continuing to investigate uh, how who gave them this memo. And one of the things that uh, came out when they issued their retraction was that the source of the memo was never actually known to the reporters who were writing this story. They got it somehow. We don't exactly know how, if it was dropped off in an unmarked envelope or dropped somewhere in an anonymous server or a Dropbox link or something like that. But they uh, said that they were able to verify the memo's authenticity with a city employee whom they trusted. Um, but that city employee had then later kind of walked back their their uh, vouching for this document. So to some extent, the damage has been done. Um, the, you know, the, that story was up for a week and it was used by uh, Gloria's opponent, Barbara Bree, in some Facebook ads. She has since taken those ads down, um, but has really repeated the attacks on Gloria for supporting this 101 Ash Street deal when he was on the city council. Gloria says he, and he has always said that he made his decision to support that deal based on the information that was given to him and his council colleagues at, at that time, that the info was incomplete. And the true culprits in this this really bad deal are Mayor Kevin Faulkner and his staff who orchestrated the whole thing. Oh, wow. And <laughs> we assume there's a lot more to come out from all of this. Now, the question begged right away on this false story is, who's going to benefit from this? And uh, it seems uh, pretty obvious, these these two opponents of uh, Todd Gloria and the uh, incumbent uh, Mara Elliott, right? Yes, and we asked Barbara Bree um, point blank, do you know who gave this memo to uh, NBC7? Or does do any of your council staffers or do any of your campaign staffers know who gave them this memo? And she said no. It certainly leaves us a lot of intrigue. We, we want to know who, who uh, you know, has this vendetta against um, these two elected officials and why they would go to such great lengths to fabricate a document and plant a hit piece on uh, the, them in, in the news media. It's uh, quite a fluid situation. Very fluid. And and ultimately, um, you know, the question that we should be asking our uh, people who are running for a higher office in the city is, what are they going to do about this deal, 101 Ash Street? How are they going to try and continue with the tenant improvements and eventually hope to move uh, employees in? Are they going to try and somehow uh, back out of the deal? I mean, there are many options that the city has, and none of them is good. What is the city going to do with this mess now that it has already stepped in it? And we're going to be certainly following your coverage and how all this plays out, especially between now and November 3rd. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Thanks, Andrew. You're welcome, Mark.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm Mark Sauer, in for Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. Since the age of seven, Herbert Seguenza has been obsessed with artist Pablo Picasso. Now, because the pandemic has forced the San Diego Rep to present its plays online, Seguenza has had the opportunity to turn his play A Weekend with Pablo Picasso into a film. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Seguenza, who also plays Picasso. Herbert. Picasso is a person and a character you have been living with for a lot of years. So where are the origins for the story? How long back does how long back is your obsession with Picasso? I have been living with Picasso all my life. The story is is I was 7 years old and I went to the dentist's office with my mom and in the waiting room, you know, there's always these books and magazines and I picked up a book by Douglas Duncan of photographs called a The Private Life of Picasso. I was seven years old and, and I was so impressed by this old man at 76 that painted wildly like a child. He painted like a child. He played around with his kids. He had goats, he had owls. He had a beautiful wife. He ran around in his uh, underwear with no, uh, no shirt. He just looked like a free soul. A, a, a very happy soul. And I told my mom, you know, when I grow up, mom, I want to be like this viejito. I want to be like this little old man. And she says, oh, no, he's, he's Picasso. He's crazy. You know, I'm like, but I never forgot that. Never forgot that. Um, so I've always, uh, I was born with a uh, drawing talent. I, I've, uh, as, since I was a kid, I, I, I would draw. So I was always an artist before I was an actor. So when I, be, when I became an actor many years later, that book always was in the back of my mind. Like I knew all my life that I was going to write that play and perform that play. And then when I turned 50, 10 years ago, I approached the rep and Todd and said, hey, uh, I, I showed him the book. I said, I want to do a play based off this book. And I said, okay, go ahead and write it. And sure enough that, you know, we wrote it. And I, I wrote it and uh, with the help of Todd, and, uh, you know, it's just become a journey. It's really become, in other words, I fulfilled what I, I, I set out to do since I was seven, was to play this old man named Picasso. As a playwright, what was it about Picasso and his life that you wanted to tap into and that you felt were themes you wanted to explore? Well, as you know, if you know my work, I'm a political artist. My work has uh, always been about social justice. It's always been uh, socially based. And, you know, Picasso, even though he was a pacifist, he was also a communist. He was also an activist. You know, he, he also was a, 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 a supporter of the peace movement. He reacted to things like the bombing of Guernica in 1937, uh, 1939, 39. 
he produced one to me one of the most most uh, horrifying uh, political statements ever, which is the the painting Guernica, right? It's just amazing, and it's timeless, right? It, it's it's timeless. It's uh, you could you could say Guernica represents the California fires. It, it, it represents all the horrors of humanity, right? In this one painting, so he knew how to do, be a political artist. I don't think he wanted to be, you know, but he did have to react to it. And that's kind of what, that's my philosophy in art. It's not that I want to be a political artist. I just cannot sit around and not talk about what's going on in the country, you know, as it's burning. <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to react. I have to talk about it. Uh, if, we, if this was a peaceful society and everything was equitable and everything was beautiful, yeah, I would probably write for art's sake, you know. But I don't think we're there yet. We're far from there. This is a production you've revisited over the years. How is it playing out to you right now in the current political climate? And are different ideas or themes playing different for you right now? I think it's timeless. I, I, it's Yes, of course, everything's more elevated right now. But I think this play is timeless in the fact that it talks about an artist that is now famous is now rich, is not hungry anymore, has done it all, he's a legend, what does he do? What, what, how can an artist react to a political statement? My play takes place after the invasion of uh, Hungary by the Soviets. And Picasso was very upset about this invasion. He thought it was, you know, it was unilateral invasion. He, he, was, not, he was very upset. Him and uh, a lot of um, European intellectuals were upset about this. They wrote a letter to the Central Committee saying that we, we, we as artists are denouncing this. We don't agree with you there. Uh, of course, the Soviets ignored the artists and, 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 and continued to do that. But, uh, but Picasso was very upset. And so the, my play is about how does a superstar artist that has it all, how can they still be political? How can they still react to something that's going on in the world? What do you think an artist is? An imbecile? who has eyes if he's a painter, ears if he's a musician, a liar in every chamber of his heart if he's a poet, quite the contrary. He is a political being, constantly alert to the horrifying, passionate, or pleasing events of the world, shaping himself completely in its image. That's what it's about. It's about him being awakened from his stupor in the south of France you know, while he's, you know, drawing doves and, 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 and flowers, you know, this invasion is happening. And so that kind of wakes him up from his, uh, from his stupor. And he goes back to Guernica. He remembers Guernica. Like, I make the parallel between Guernica and the Hungary invasion. If we go back now, if we look at it contemporary, yeah, we, you know, we're in the Middle East. There's wars everywhere in the world. And, and so things have not changed at all. You know, with Picasso, uh, Picasso would be painting about that right now. As somebody who works in theater, I'm sure you would be preferring to work with a live audience and, you know, being able to meet in person. However, as someone who's been living with this play for a decade, how does it feel to now have it in a form that will be remembered forever? I am so thrilled. It, it, it was just, it's fate. It's fate. You, you know, I would probably be... There would be no film if, the, if, the, if there would be no COVID, right? I mean, COVID made us, COVID made all theaters become like movie studios. You know, we're all putting out stuff. And so 
when I approached Sam and Todd saying, why don't we do, you know, because we wanted to offer something to people. I said, well, you know, I know Picasso. I'm ready to do Picasso. I just did it at, you know, New Village Arts a year ago. Uh, why don't we do a movie? And they go, yeah, let's do it. But let's do it as a movie. And I'm going, yes, I've always wanted to do that. Let's do it. Let's elevate the stage production. And so I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that this is, this goes beyond the stage production. You know, I think people are going to see uh, an elevated version of the, of the stage play. Um, what I like about the movie is that it, it's much more intimate. You know, you're close up. Uh, you're really seeing what Picasso's thinking about and suffering about um, much more than in the play. So I had to tone down my acting a lot because I'm an, you know, I'm a stage actor. And in film, film, you have to tone down, you have to internalize the feelings and not externalize them as much. And so I'm thrilled. I'm really thrilled and, and I'm very happy with it. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about Picasso. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Herbert Sequenza. The San Diego Rep debuts the film version of A Weekend with Pablo Picasso on Thursday, and it will be available online through October 14th. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.